Welcome back to The Compass, the podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're thrilled that you've chosen to download and listen as we continue our journey through God's Word. On today's podcast, Pastor Kirk is back and he is sharing with us from the book of Philippians chapter 3 verses 12 through 16. Let me invite you to join us for worship at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you live in Northwest Arkansas, we would love to have you join us for a time of worship and study and just connection. We are here for you. We care about you. And we want to worship the King together. Well, again, on Pastor Kurt's message today, he's going to be sharing a message entitled, One Thing I Do from Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 16. Let's listen together. Well, if God would grant you one wish today, what would you ask for? If God just said to you, name it, one wish, what more than anything else, but only one thing, what would you like to have? What do you want? more than anything else in the world. For some of us, that might be hard to come up with an answer. For others, you could probably name something right now because it is something that maybe is at the forefront of your prayer life, maybe a great burden in your family or in your heart. But when we know that God is not a genie in a bottle, right? He's not someone who is obligated to just show up and give us what we want, someone to respond to our every beck and call. I would suggest to you that if he was, we would really be in a mess, wouldn't we? (laughs) I'm going to tell you, in all honesty, I am just as thankful today for many of the prayers God did not answer in my life as I am for the prayers that he has answered. Because many of those prayers were wrong, wrongly focused. They were not within the will of God as I understood it at the time. I'm just thankful that God in his providence sees fit to fulfill his plan in our lives Sometimes in spite of all of our wishes and our desires. But I know that we would still like to have that one thing above all else, wouldn't we? Well, I want to tell you, if you'll hang on to the end of the message, I want to tell you how God will give you what you desire. How God will answer in the affirmative. But you've got to stay with me to the end. Well, with that thought in mind, we're in Philippians chapter 3. We're making our way through this book. And, um, you know, in order to understand the passage we're going to read in a moment, beginning in verse 12, we kind of have to remember what comes before it because these two things uh, are are very closely connected. And I love the way chapter 3 begins. There's four chapters in the book of Philippians. So you think, okay, you cover the first two. You've covered half the book, actually about two-thirds of the book in the first two chapters. And you get to chapter 3, and it begins with the word, finally. Finally. 
Finally, my brothers and sisters, that's what the word means there in the Greek, rejoice in the Lord. Now, you would think that when a, uh, an apostle like Paul or a pastor says, finally, you think it's about time to start winding things up, right? You know the old saying. You know what it means when a pastor says, in conclusion? It means absolutely nothing. Nothing at all. Because he may only be halfway through. And that's kind of the way it is with the Apostle Paul. When he says, finally, as he begins chapter 3, he's not saying in conclusion. He's not winding things up. He's actually getting to the place where he's just now really uh, hitting his stride, I think. Uh, basically, the word doesn't mean finally in conclusion. It means as for the rest. As for the rest, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice. And so with the... Uh, the much more that he has to say uh, gets started in chapter 3 and verse 2 and goes through verse 11. I'm not going to re-preach that message. Pastor Dan preached it last week. He did a skillful job in leading you through those verses where Paul says some amazing things. He almost sounds like he was rather arrogant, but he, um, he talks about what's really important in his life. If you want to summarize those verses, uh, those verses 2 through 11, Paul is basically giving us this key truth. You've heard these words oftentimes from many different passages, but Paul is in essence repeating it here in chapter 3 in the first 11 verse, verses. And the key truth is this, true righteousness the kind of righteousness that will get you to heaven. True righteousness before God only comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone, as is taught in the Word of God alone. The five solas of Scripture. Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, God's glory alone taught in Scripture alone. Now, I know he didn't use those words, but he talked about his own righteousness, everything that, that he could claim about his own accomplishments, his own achievements, his own accolades, and he said, all of my righteousness is nothing but rubbish. Now, the translators have been very kind to us and very discreet in using the word rubbish because the word in the Greek language is the word manure. Everything that I have ever done, every achievement, every accolade, every accomplishment, and I want to suggest to you that the Apostle Paul perhaps had more of those than any other child of God that has ever lived. And he said, when I take everything that I've done, everything that I've accomplished, everything that I've achieved, all the awards that I've been given, all of these things, and wrap it into one package to offer it to God, it is something that ought to be shoveled out of the barn into the manure pile because that's all it's worth. And he said, instead, 
what I'm claiming and what I'm calling out to God for is the righteousness which comes by faith in the only one who lived a perfectly righteous life, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, our best is no better than that of Paul's. It belongs in the same pile. So he gets down to verse 10 and 11. This is part of last week's message, and this is what he said was his ambition in life. Verses 10 and 11, that I may know him, speaking of Jesus, and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. My one thing in life, my greatest desire in life, my greatest ambition in life is to know Christ. That's what Paul said. To know the power of his resurrection. It's interesting that, that Paul would say to know Christ is my ambition. He had known Christ at the time that he was writing this letter to the Philippians. He had known Jesus for 30 years. 30 years! And he's still saying, I want to know him more. I need to know him better. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to know the power over death. But I'm also willing, and I even desire to know the, and to share in his sufferings. Why? Until you share in his sufferings, you do not really know him. There are aspects of knowing Christ Dear friends, that you will only know when you have followed him so closely that you have even suffered with him. You've even suffered the shame. You've even suffered the rejection that he has suffered. Until that comes, you don't know him in his fullness. I want to know the share and share in his sufferings. I want to attain the resurrection. That does not mean to earn the resurrection, but I want to arrive at the resurrection. That is my ambition. So that's what Paul is saying. Those are his closing words in those first 11 verses, and he takes up with our text today in verse 12. Follow it with me. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, please give us. 
and what we are not, we ask you to make us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if there's a more challenging, a more inspiring passage describing discipleship as what we have in the words we just read. Someone has said discipleship is a long walk in the same direction. The problem so often with those who claim the name of Christ is that we are so easily distracted off of that long walk in the same direction. We are so easily led into this or that, sometimes even stopping, sometimes even going backwards. But true discipleship, the discipleship that leads a person into Christ's likeness, into knowing Christ, even as he knows us. This is what God's call is for all of his children. I want to just do my best to walk you through those verses again. And I want to give you five thoughts for your consideration, maybe as a way to organize our thoughts about what he says here. I'll be as brief as I possibly can. You know that I'm not always or even seldom very successful at that. Number one, notice Paul's humility. Paul's humility. We see it at the beginning of verse 12 and at the beginning of verse 13. At the beginning of verse 12, he says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. At the beginning of verse 13, I do not consider that I have made it my own. Now, just the words Paul's humility, after reading the first 11 verses of chapter 3, you might be tempted to say, he sounds more arrogant than humble to me. I mean, he's boasting about his achievements. He's boasting about all of his accomplishments. It even gets to the point of saying, if any human being in the world has a reason to boast, I have more. I lead the pack. You can't outdo me in self-righteousness. You can't do as much as I've done. But remember, he came down to the place that he said, but all of those self-righteous achievements were something that needs to be shoveled out of the cow barn. So remember that he understood the truth about all of his accomplishments. In fact, Paul was perhaps one of the most humble servants of God that's ever walked the face of this earth. He said, my goal, my ambition in life is to know Christ, to know the power of his resurrection, to share in his sufferings, and to arrive at the resurrection. And then he quickly reminds his hearers, those that he's writing to, I have not already obtained this. I'm not yet made complete in character. That's what the word perfect means. I have not yet arrived. I've not yet seized upon that which I am 
pursuing. I'm having to press on after it. I do not consider that I have yet to comprehend it, to fully understand it, to fully perceive it, to fully grasp it. Paul's humility. I'm not there yet. I would have to echo those words. When it comes to knowing Christ in his fullness and to be living in Christ's likeness, his plan for my life, I am not there yet. I have not arrived. I trust you can say the same. Paul's humility. Number two, Paul's determination. In spite of not having arrived, in spite of the fact of following Christ and knowing Christ for 30 years and not yet knowing him in his fullness, he was not discouraged in the pursuit. He was determined. He said in verse 12 and verse 14 with three simple words, he repeated them. He said them twice, I press on. I press on. What does it mean to press on? What does the language mean here? It means to pursue in a specific direction. Remember, growing in discipleship is a long walk in the same direction. It means to pursue that direction. It means to follow eagerly, eagerly, it means to endeavor earnestly to acquire or to reach a goal. It means to press forwards in spite of the many obstacles, the many distractions, the many detours that get thrown up and roadblocks in our way. It means that we don't give up. We don't back up. We don't get off track. He said, I Press on. If there's one testimony that every child of God in this room this morning needs to be able to say in all honesty and truthfulness, it is this. I press on. The language here, there's just no way to bring it into the English quite in the same way that it was written in the Greek language Paul was writing in. In fact, one, one author says this. He says that the description here, especially in verse 14, is tinged with violence. What does that mean, tinged with violence? Perhaps the King James says it clearer than maybe any other translation. He said, it is my goal to apprehend that for which I have been apprehended. Now, think of apprehend not in the sense of just comprehending, but of seizing and laying hold of. You hear and you watch one of my favorite shows on TV is the old Law and Order series. Don't you just love those? You know, the first half is the police finding the bad guy. And the second half is the, you know, district attorney, you know, process, or say persecuting, prosecuting the bad guy. And the best thing about it is you don't hardly ever have to get sidetracked in all of the goopy and, and, and mixed up personal lives of the people. It's all just business. Get the bad guy and put him in jail. 
I love that. But you see, when they catch the bad guy, that's when they apprehend them, that they lay hold on them. Now understand, 30 years before Paul writes these words, he was a persecutor of the church. You remember that. He was known as Saul. And Saul was on his way from Jerusalem to Damascus, and he had official papers that was going to give him permission to not just prosecute, but to persecute Christians in Damascus. And then a bright light blinded him out of heaven, and a voice spoke to him and said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It was the voice of Jesus. And on that day, Paul was apprehended. The one who was the real bad guy got caught. And God apprehended him. And Paul is saying here that, that it is my ambition in life that I am going to apprehend that for which I was apprehended. Now follow me here because there are two sides to this. If you are a true child of God, if you're a true believer, there was a time, oh sinner, that you were apprehended by God. It's not that he just then found you. It is that that was his timing to save you. And that was all in his divine providence, all having been determined, predestined in the past, Coming to, fulfill, coming to fulfillment in time and space. God apprehended you. But listen to me. He didn't just apprehend you to get you into heaven. In other words, once you were apprehended, the story was not over. The journey was just beginning. If I were to ask you if you know Jesus, every person here that has professed faith in Christ will say, yes, I know Jesus, but I'm going to tell you it could be that all you've done is met Jesus. To meet someone and to really know someone are two very different things. Two very different things. And you have been apprehended for a purpose. You have been apprehended for a plan. God has a purpose and a reason for you to become a child of God. And it's not just to get you to heaven. That is the ultimate victory. But in the meantime, it is for you to become like Christ in this life and in this world. For you to be a true Christian, a little Christ in the world. Someone who reflects the Lord Jesus and that God can use to reach others. And in order for that to happen, you've got to make it your goal and your ambition, like Paul, to know Christ in his fullness so that you can reflect Christ accurately and speak for Christ accurately. You need to make it your ambition to apprehend, to lay hold of the purpose for which God laid hold of you. Paul's determination, I press on. In spite of all the obstacles, I keep moving forward. Notice number three, Paul's goal. We know it is to know Christ in his fullness. But listen to how he words it in verse 14. 
I press on forward and toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It is a goal. He is envisioning here, and he was intimately aware of what would have been the Olympic Games. He's talking about running a faithful race. He does this in other places in the New Testament. There is a goal. There is a prize. It is the laurel wreath, the crown that is given to the victor. And it is the crown for the one who wins this race of the upward call. It is not a downward spiral. It is an upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, I'm going to say something here that you're going to have to concentrate to get or you may get the wrong impression. Paul was marked by a deep dissatisfaction in this life. A deep dissatisfaction. And it is a deep dissatisfaction that ought to mark the life of every follower of Christ. What am I talking about? I'm not talking about a dissatisfaction in God. I'm not talking about a disappointment because God hasn't come through for me the way that I wanted him to. I'm not talking about a dissatisfaction with the Word of God with God's dealing with us, with God's work in our lives. I'm not talking about a dissatisfaction in the faithfulness of God because God is always faithful to fulfill his purposes. I'm talking about a deep dissatisfaction, not even of my own shortcomings and my own failures, although we ought to be very aware of that. I'm talking about that a more of a hunger that is created. A hunger that was created at the moment of his conversion. The Bible says, challenges us, taste and see that the Lord is good. But folks, understand, when you truly get a taste of Christ, it creates a hunger and a thirst and a dissatisfaction because you want more of him. You want more of him. You meet him at the point of conversion. But rather than sitting back and saying, okay, I can check that off of my list of to-dos. I've got a home in heaven now. All is fine. Pie in the sky when I die and all the rest. God doesn't save you and instantly just cause you to sit back and fall into some kind of compl complacency, just humming and whiling the hours away until God calls you home. If you've truly tasted Christ, it makes you want more of him. There is a key truth here, and it is this. The more we come to know Christ, the more we will come to sense our need to grow and to know him even better and even more. Jesus himself said in Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Only when we hunger and thirst and pursue and follow hard after and press on 
Are we satisfied as we grow and know Christ in his fullness? Pastor Kent Hughes says, spiritual dissatisfaction is a blessed state because it drives us on. It motivates us on. Paul's goal. Number four, Paul's devotion and what goes along with that devotion, the required sacrifice. Paul's devotion and sacrifice. Look at verse 13. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. We'll pause the reading right there. You've heard me say this before. I know that some of you don't agree, but you're just wrong. And I love you anyway. You've heard me say this before. There's no such thing as priorities, plural, in life. For the first 400 years that the word priority came into the English language, it was never written or spoken or used in the plural. There are not priorities in life. There's only priority, a priority. What am I saying? I'm saying the moment that you count multiple priorities, every one of them ceases to be the priority. There can only be one priority in life. Everything else is secondary or tertiary or somewhere below that. That which is a priority is that which was prior. That which comes first. That which takes precedence. And every person here has a priority in life. It's not the same one. It needs to be the same one, but it's not. What is your priority in life? It's whatever you give the first of your affection, the first of your attention, the first of your allegiance, the first of your time and attention to. It's whatever you are willing to rearrange everything else around. What is your priority? Your career and your family cannot both be priorities. It makes you feel better to say that they are both your priorities. And you may even throw the Lord and His church, His Word in with that mix. But they can't all be. In the choices you make every day, in what you give your attention, your allegiance, your affections to, 
is what will bubble to the surface as your priority. Notice, Paul was devoted to not many priorities. He had a lot of irons in the fire, but he had one priority. He cared about many churches, for he started many churches, and he wrote to many churches, and he had many uh, companions in ministry, and he knew them, and he knew them intimately. Just read chapter 16 of Romans and find how many people he knew by name, and he mentions them as being faithful servants alongside him. Paul was a man who did not live or function as some kind of solo free agent living in a silo somewhere. But in spite of all of that, he had one priority. Notice how he described it. This one thing I do. In order to be committed to the one thing, involves difficult and deliberate definitive choices that you're going to have to move some other things to the side for that one thing. There's always, there's always choices to be made. And folks, listen, it's not always for the Christian between good and bad. There are many things in your life that are good. But the question is, which one is the best thing? And I'm going to say to you, to elevate anything, listen to me now, even your marriage, your children, your home, your ambitions, to elevate any one of those things above God and God and knowing Him in His fullness is to put every one of them in danger. The worst thing you can do for your marriage is to love your spouse more than God. Conversely, the best thing you can do for your marriage is to love God first. The worst thing you can do for your children or your grandchildren is to love them more than you love God. If you don't think that that's something that God takes seriously, go back and read the story of Abraham and Isaac when Abraham's love for Isaac came perilously close to replacing his love for God, and God required him to sacrifice his son. So he said, this one thing I do. Then he followed it up. He said, forgetting what lies behind. Understand that, that long walk and movement in the same direction involves the fact that you can't be looking over your shoulder plagued with the past. It doesn't mean we just gloss over it or brush over it or act like it didn't happen. It means that we repent of those failures. It means that we confess them, but that we also forsake them, that we don't let our past failures define us, that we don't let our past successes cause us to be boastful. It means that we forget and leave behind the past to disregard those successes and failures, those victories and defeats. And then he said, I strain, I 
press. I reach forward to what lies behind. And again, it is the Olympic runner who is coming towards the finish line. The finish line is in sight. He can hear the footsteps behind him. But the moment that he looks over his shoulder in that split second, he loses the advantage. You keep on leaning forward, pressing, straining towards that finish line. He says, this is my devotion. It involves sacrifice. Friends, understand, that's not just for the Apostle Paul. Every mother, every daughter, every father, every son is called to a similar single-minded, determined pursuit of Christ to know him fully. Number five, go, <gasps> finally. Say it with me, finally. Okay, number five, Paul's motivation. Why was Paul so motivated towards this single-mindedness? Why was he so motivated in his relentless pursuit to know Christ in his fullness. What was it that, that drove him to forget the past, to strain for the future, to reduce his life to the one priority of attaining oneness with Christ, even if it could only come through suffering? What motivated him towards that? The last few words of verse 12. Because Christ, Jesus, has made me his own. Because Christ, Jesus, has made me his own. I press on to make it my own because Christ, Jesus, has made me his own. Dennis E. Johnson, in his commentary on Philippians, titles this chapter, I like this, The Restless Race of Those Who Rest in Grace. Those who truly rest in grace. Those who Jesus has made his own. Is that you? Is it you? Those who rest in grace are called to run a restless race. Folks, listen to me. There'll be enough time to sit back on a pew if that's really what you want to do when you get to heaven. There'll be time enough to rest then. I want to suggest to you, you won't. You'll be more energized than ever. But if you were satisfied with a complacent, just warm up you Christianity, you're missing something. You're missing what the Christian life is all about. And you may be missing what is the true Christian life altogether. Because if Jesus has made you his own, he has, he has moved into your heart. And he's doing a work in your life. And Paul says basically this, that, that God's saving grace 
caused and left its marks on his life. God's saving grace marked Paul by that sense of a righteous, a restless dissatisfaction. He wasn't passive. He wasn't mediocre. He didn't have a take it or leave it form of Christianity. He was going to pursue Christ. There was a dissatisfaction. There was devotion to run with abandon, to run with courage, to not look back, but the devotion to continually press on. There was a sense of direction. He knew which way he was going. He was not distracted to the right or the left. His eyes were on the prize. There was a determination to keep going no matter what obstacles, no matter what what roadblocks the enemy threw in the way, whether it was imprisonment, whether it was beatings or shipwrecks or false accusations or offenses or misunderstandings, no matter what, he was determined to keep going. He was disciplined to keep his life focused on that one priority, that one thing he was going to do and let everything else fall into its rightful place. Well, let me draw this to a close. And I made you a promise. I said, if you want to know how God will give you what you want and what you ask for, there is a way. Dan, would you and the singers go ahead and musicians make your way back? We're going to close with a song today that words, I believe, fit this passage completely. There is one situation and one condition, as I understand it, where God promises to give us what we want. What we want. And I believe that promise comes in Psalm 37, verse 4 and 5. I believe it'll be here on the screen. I think we have it. Where Scripture says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him. And He will act. What amazing promises. He will give you the desires of your heart. He will act. I've prayed for the longest for him to move and to act, but it seems like he doesn't even hear. We look at the promises of those verses and we wonder, could they possibly be true? But we need to focus on the condition because that's our part. You want to receive the desires of your heart? What did he say to do? Delight yourself in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. That means to make him your one thing in life. It means to pursue him. It means for him to be your true priority. Delight yourself in the Lord. And an amazing thing happens. Your desires begin to be conformed into his desires and his desires into yours. You become like him. He is reflected in you. And you 
come to the place that you desire the things he desires. He will give those to you every single time. You want him to move on your behalf? Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will move. He will act on your behalf. So what do you want today? Do you want what God wants? Let me read those two verses to you from the message, a paraphrase. Maybe it casts a little different light on it uh, or at least uh, uh, puts a bit of humanity to it. Keep company with God. Get in on the best. Open up before God. Keep nothing back. He'll do whatever needs to be done. He'll validate your life in the clear light of day and stamp you with approval at high noon. Make knowing Christ the number one thing in your life. Make Him your priority. Our heart's desire is that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in Northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.